the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk topic we're all familiar with, at least we ought to be if we're honest with ourselves, the issue of brokenness is something that all of us have to struggle with at varying times in our lives and varying degrees. You know, the irony is when we, when we know broken people, when we are in relationships with broken individuals, it could be a spouse, it could be uh, offspring or a sibling or maybe even an acquaintance, a co-worker, uh, the inclination, the tendency is to want to go in and try to fix them. And that's understandable, right? We've been raised in a culture that says when something is broken, you fix it. Uh, men are particularly good at that. They don't want to feel. They don't want to discuss. They just want to get to the heart of the problem and fix it. But some problems cannot so readily be fixed. And then what happens? Well, depending upon how you deal with it, um, it, it could create an atmosphere uh, that is prickly at times and painful or can be uh, downright chaotic. My next guest knows exactly what that is like. He was raised in a household that was characterized by a sense of brokenness and chaos and stress and turmoil. And he has detailed these experiences and the insights that they have given him, um, ultimately in his walk with Christ, inside the pages of a new book called All But Normal, Life on Victory Road. Pastor Sean Thornton is senior pastor at Calvary Community Church down south of us in Westlake Village. Also the um, Bible speaker on All Things New, a nationally syndicated Christian teaching program. He's also a member of the board of directors of one of my favorite organizations, Johnny and Friends. And Pastor Thornton, great to have you on the show. Thank you, Craig. Great to be with you. And you, you really gave a great setup in terms of brokenness and how people are broken and, and the difficulty with trying to fix them sometimes. And we want to, you know, we want to fix them because I think we, we desire to, to find a life that is normal, whatever that means. I saw the title of your book and it, it reminded me of a, a quip that's often shared in her public performances, a, a Christian comedian, Shonda Pierce, who says, normal is just a setting on your dryer. We, we're, we're looking for normal in life, but the reality is, I guess, in man's fallen condition that that brokenness really is normal and and sometimes we need to understand that um, uh, everything can be but normal and yet in and through all of that the, the question especially for the believer that needs to be asked is okay where do I find God in this and where can I find a sense of of peace and joy about myself apart from the chaos that, that swirls around me 
Yes, and, and when you're growing up in it, you've got the identity as a follower of, a, of Christ, of course, that's key to that. And then you've got, you know, there are a lot of kids raised in homes, maybe with a parent with some uh, mental illness, uh, physical difficulty, maybe there's just conflict in the home and the child experiences the the roughest edges of divorce as a, as a couple is splitting up and the kids are absorbing so much of it, or you have substance or alcohol abuse, and so you have children growing up, and so they're dealing with their identity in Christ if it's a Christian home, then they're dealing with their identity as an individual, as a human being, you know, coming through those coming-of-age years, and that adds another layer to it that, that complicates what is normal and how do we deal with brokenness around us. And there is that, I think, human tendency to want to not only fix things, but also readily so, I think, to assign blame. And it's interesting because yeah. I, I started thumbing through the book um, last week, and if you kind of pick up halfway through, you think, oh my goodness, I mean, all of this <laughs> yeah. tragedy and this chaos going on here. You know, clearly, poor Sean was raised in a home with uh, drug abuse or uh, alcoholism, things of that sort. Couldn't possibly be a Christian home, and yet right. you were not only raised in a Christian home by loving parents, and there was a sense of, of tremendous dedication. Your mother was even a Sunday school teacher, but okay. it was a, a tragic event. One of those unforeseen gotchas that happened in life that, uh, you know, uh, was the fault of no one, uh, at least right. within the family, that happened uh, 38 years before your mother ultimately passed and kind of kick-started all yep. of this. Uh, share that story, if you would, to kind of give some some perspective for our listener as as to your, your, your personal pain and, and the, the source of the turmoil in your home. Well, my, when my mom was 14, she was a believer. She was a part of Youth for Christ Bible uh, studies and youth groups back in the early 60s, and so she was a follower of Christ, a uh, young believer. She was 14, and uh, she had a crush on a, a boy, and, and he'd invite her to a dance, and so they've got this early relationship, and she convinces her parents one day, he's a senior, she's a freshman, he has his driver's license, let, let John just drive me. Uh, to the department store to return an item. It was 10 or 15 minutes from their home. And uh, the young man, John, drove in front of a pickup truck when he was turning at a, a stoplight. And there was this accident where um, she hit her head on the dashboard. She was unconscious for three months. So she's out from the moment of the accident for three months. She turns 15 in this coma. The young man graduates from high school while she's in the coma. And when she wakes up, her parents realize that she has a different personality. She used to be really easygoing, never could be agitated, calm. And now she's got a very agitated personality. She has to learn how to walk and talk all over again. And so uh, this woman, who was Beverly Gilvin at the time, my mother, she uh, takes with her into life a lot of physical challenges. She couldn't drive. She couldn't quite walk straight. Uh, she couldn't sign her name very quickly. To pick up a glass would take some focus because there wasn't the physical therapy in 1962 that we have today. So she took physical challenges into life. She took emotional challenges. She'd get upset over very little things and then get calm and then laugh and then be upset again. And then mental illness of depression and almost a bipolar uh, kind of symptoms that were a part of her life. And so... Um, she, she took all that not only into life, but then into our family when she got married. And, and she married the man who was driving the car, mm. that young man. That's my father. And so there's a complication even in his life of, do I love her? Am I, am I marrying her out of guilt? And that kind of continues through my story as well. But, but it, all that brokenness 
comes into our home so that I grew up with a mother who she could get upset real quick and just start throwing things, screaming. She tried to jump out of the car at high rates of speed to take her own life. Uh, sometimes she'd grab the steering wheel and she'd get mad at dad or us. And she'd pull it and, and uh, pull us into a cornfield or a, a, you know off the road and almost take our lives. And so that was the constant, not just you know every now and then, but constant tension, brokenness, chaos. And yet she loved the Lord, read her Bible every day, prayed every day, um, is one of my greatest spiritual heroes. And so it's that kind of conflict. I think, Craig, there are a lot of folks listening who have wounds of their childhood that, that maybe are similar, not the same in terms of, of uh, events or, or circumstances, but, but the same in terms of the pull on the heart and the struggle they had growing up in, that, in an environment that wasn't quite normal. And, you know, so often, as I suggested earlier, Pastor, this this tendency that we often have to want to try to fix things or to, or, or to assign blame with the notion that, well, somebody out there, then if, you, if I can't fix it, then you're responsible for fixing it. And, you know, not to minimize things, but people can go to counseling. People can go and, and get into drug rehabilitation programs, things of this sort. There are times and circumstances where some things can be done to mitigate the impact of what's going on. On inside of the family environment. But this is one, as you're suggesting, Sean, that was, you know, uh, it was an accident. It happened as a result of the quite apparent brain injury. It ended up literally impacted not only just every part of your mother Beverly's life, but ultimately your dad's life and, and you and your brother Troy. And, and this was not a thing that could be fixed, was it? No, and you know, and, and back then, a couple of things too, you have to remember, like I mentioned, there wasn't a physical occupational therapy. A couple of weeks after she woke up, she was sent home and she couldn't even really walk yet. And today that would be different. You know, the, the, we've, we've had a lot more advances in areas of physical therapy, speech therapy. We understand traumatic brain injury a lot more because it wasn't even a term until the late 70s and this happened in the early 60s. And so even medical doctors would just say, we don't know what's wrong with her. She woke up. She should be fine kind of an approach. And now, of course, we see it with the NFL and soldiers coming home from Iraq and and uh, Afghanistan, you know, blows to the head, uh, explosion near the head. Uh, those kinds of things leave uh, folks with some some debilitating. And often they get worse over the years in the case of, like, football players, as the studies have shown. And um, that happened to my mom. And so... There weren't those things that could be a quick fix. She went to our pastor for prayer. She went to counselors. She went to medical doctors. And um, they did what they could. I liked your word mitigate because there were, there were things we learned over the years, especially when we started figuring out what mom's issues were, where we would work hard, my dad, my brother, and I, to not create an environment to set her off, if you will, mm-hmm. um, to upset her. We weren't good at it. Two boys coming through the teen years with, with a dad who... They worked at the factory all day and come home, and he could be kind of agitated himself. And then he, like you said, he was passionate mentally, emotionally, even spiritually about fixing her. But often his attempts to fix her, and this is true of most of us, we try to fix broken people, that, that maybe there's, there's a wound they have till they're with Jesus. But we try to fix broken people. Sometimes we add fuel to the fire when we do it, you know, for our own... Uh, comfort or for own conscience sake you know my dad I think dealt with a lot of guilt through the years and he always wanted to kind of fix mom and that added to it so he'd argue with her or he'd if she shoved him he'd shove her if she threw something at him he'd throw something back and 
and that kind of environment is hard for any child to grow up in and uh and to see God in the midst of that. But I did. I, I, I saw God and His grace in the midst of that. It wasn't always easy, as you said, by thumbing through the middle of the book. When you said that, I thought, oh boy, when you just plop down the middle of, of all but normal, <laughs> you can run into anything. Um, um, but it was Johnny Erickson Tata who encouraged me, along with Max Ocato, to actually write the book. Um, I told my story to Johnny, and she was fascinated because often we have the stories of parents telling the story of having a child with special needs but she said there aren't a lot of insights from the perspective of a child with a mother or father of special needs or mental illness or physical difficulty. Um, so she really encouraged that because, as you you know, we know from her life, uh, God has chosen not to heal her. And so she, she has been used by God in her wheelchair, in her brokenness. And sometimes she told me it's very frustrating, and she loved how I expressed that frustration from the side of a child. And, and to begin to understand as well that not only do we need to embrace the sense that there are some things that we cannot fix, in, in God's greater design, um, and, I, and I, you know, with the, the disclaimer, the caveat, now we see through a glass darkly, right? But sometimes within God's design, um, being influenced by that brokenness around us is a tool that he can use in order to do a great work in our own lives. Not to just teach us how to love the difficult to love, the sometimes unlovable individuals in our lives, but also what is the greater good that we can extract from that experience? And we're going to talk about that as our conversation continues. If you've just tuned in, we're visiting today with a senior pastor of Calvary Community Church in Westlake Village. Down south in Southern California. He's also the speaker on the nationally syndicated All Things New radio broadcast and a member of the board of directors of Johnny and Friends. He's Pastor Sean Thornton. The book is called All But Normal Life on Victory Road. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to our visit, Pastor Scott Thornton, our guest, Senior Pastor at Calvary Community Church of Westlake Village. The new book is called All But Normal, Life on Victory Road. Um, There seems to be, as you suggest in the book, uh, Pastor Sean, there is this sense that your mother had a, I'll call it a pool of anger that she seemed to to dip into or draw from. Sometimes it seemed to be uh, endless or bottomless, and she could act out at different times in different places uh, and in pretty severe ways. I mean, throwing things and temper tantrums and threatening to throw your father out and all of it. And you characterize the, the difference between the way you sort of reacted to all of this or handled it and the way your brother... Uh, Troy did, where, where he kind of, uh, what's the old adage, water off a duck's back. <laughs> yeah, he says I made him out to be a sociopath. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, I, I think it's showing a difference I perceive, and we've had a lot of discussions. He's very happy with the book and supports it, but his perspective on things was, you know, I was the firstborn, and I was trying to fix it, just like we were talking mm-hmm. about. Firstborn, I'm trying to be the peacemaker between my parents. I'm trying to engage in, in resolving mom's issues and helping dad and calming dad, calming mom. And Troy's kind of looking at me, which is typical of the the younger child, like, what are you doing? You're, you're, you're not going to get anywhere. We just got to bide our time and get out of here away. Uh, you know, but there were times he tried to help, of course. But, but my perception as a kid was always, 
I'm leaning in to try to fix this, and Troy's saying, we can't fix this, just lean back. And there's probably truth between us somewhere. You know, this notion of trying to fix a broken life, I think, is a frustrating one because it not only makes us confront um, our own mortality, our own uh, sense of, of limitations, the fact that things cannot always be fixed, but then it also leads to that very frustrating question, and that is, well, if I can't fix it, then what? Um, she yeah. is your mother. No way around it. I mean, even if your dad, uh, John, decided yeah. that's it, I'm going to divorce the woman and be done with it, she would have always been the mother of his two sons. She will always be your mother. And so if you can't fix it, how do you relate to it? How do you say, okay, God, what is there in all of this turmoil and chaos and pain and brokenness that you want to use in my life? Yeah, I think you, you nailed it. It goes back to even what Joseph said about his brothers 22 years later when they show up and they think he's going to take his life because of what they did to him and throwing him in that pit and then selling him into slavery. He said, uh, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. In this case, I don't know if there was evil intent. There, there was an accident that occurred that left us with the personal consequences. But I still, even as a child growing up, we went to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. We were that kind of family. We were very involved. And what was good for us was that that church in Sunday school, Awana, the various ministries, taught us that God is doing something. And I, and I started as a young kid, and my brother, too. He's a pastor now as well. And we looked at our circumstances and said, okay, what is God teaching us? I, I wasn't real sophisticated. I was a kid. But I started to see the hand of God. And also my parents both leaned into the Lord. My mom would scream and holler and get my dad off to the factory in the morning. It would be chaos and noise and throwing things. And then she'd sit down and read her Bible and pray. And my dad would take in his lunch pail an Our Daily Bread and wrap it up in the thermos and the clip. At the factory at lunch, he would read his, his daily bread and talk to the Lord. And so the trajectory of their lives, even in all the brokenness, came through more than the individual moments or collection of moments that were chaos. I hope you understand what I'm saying. And somehow that just stood out for my brother and I, and, and God showed that to us and allowed us to hold on to that trajectory uh, both my mom and dad in their brokenness. You acknowledge that God had a plan in all of this. Were there ever yeah. any times, Sean, when you wrestled with God by saying, <laughs> God, I know you have a plan, but it's not my plan or I don't like your plan? <laughs> Very much so. As a matter of fact, the prologue of the book, and then again later, the worst night of my life, I'm 14, and just chaos breaks out in the other room, and my dad sends us to our bedrooms, and my mom eventually, after mirrors coming down, glass breaking, them shoving, screaming, cussing. A policeman come and, comes and takes my mom away at 14, and uh, she goes into an institution for several months, and that night when she was taken out, I didn't know if our family would ever come back together. And I remember laying there, bawling, looking at the corner of, of the ceiling tile of my room at 14 and saying, God, why am I in this house? Why wasn't I born in my neighbor's house or my cousin's house or a kid at school? They have a good, normal family. By the way, later I found out most of those people did not have normal families. <laughs> Everybody had some brokenness somewhere. Uh, but I remember just begging God and going to sleep crying that night, December 28, 1980. I describe it in the book. It was, And I know folks who are listening in, in the Bay Area there where you are, many of them remember those kinds of moments in their childhood. And somehow God, there was no audible voice, there was no you know, Jesus standing at the foot of my bed, 
but God met me in that moment. I can't even find words to describe how I fell asleep crying, asking God why, and this didn't make sense, but yet he gave me comfort, and in the next few years he would call me into ministry and move me down that path. And amazing that you are able now to comfort others in the same fashion by which you were comforted in the middle of your own pain and turmoil and understanding, you know, the, the, the truth that uh, that all of us, I think, deep down realize, but we are um, uh, hesitant to acknowledge or embrace. And that is, you know, um, even though we may think, gee, I wish our family was more like the family next door, that they never scream and yell. The cops never show up at their door at three o'clock in the morning. Yeah. They don't make scenes of fights, you know, out in the front yard and things of this sort. But, you know, what about the family? No, does none of that, but has a father, for example, who comes home every day from work. He's a workaholic. He's totally indifferent. He's not engaged mm-hmm. with, with his family. He doesn't pay any attention to his children. He's he's completely emotionally detached from them. I mean, it, mm-hmm. that seems on the outside to be more, quote-unquote, normal. But in the reality, is it's like, well, gee, I mean, void of any sense of, of engagement or passion is that really any worse than the scenario of, of the, the, the childhood that you were raised in? I would suggest probably not. I'm, I'm in agreement with you. That's part of what I tell in the story. As a little kid, I thought this was normal. I get to be 9 or 10, and I'm making excuses for it to my friends who are coming to play at our house because our house was trash. Mom couldn't clean. And then by the time I'm in my early teen years, I'm begging God to get me into some other family. But late in my teen years and into my college years, I start realizing, wait a minute, all these families that looked picture-perfect Christian families. Now some of them are divorcing, and some of, their, some of their kids are having some deep, crazy issues, and started realizing, wait, we're all broken. We're all in this journey, and my life verse is 2 Timothy 1.12, and I love it. Paul's in jail, and he doesn't know a lot, but he says, but I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. And for me... I couldn't explain it all, and even as a teenager, God gave me that verse, and I've latched onto it. I still can't explain it all. I never told my story until this book. I didn't even tell close friends any of my upbringing. They're shocked by it. The home church folks are shocked by it, but they're encouraged, too. But, um, but I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day, even in my brokenness. One day, I'll be made whole. One day you'll be made whole as a follower of Christ in the presence of Christ. And to me, that's great hope in the midst of this broken world. It strikes me that the big operative word here, as you sort of are now in your adult years, capable of taking a step back, the so-called 30,000-foot-high view on all of this, that the operative word here is perspective. And so many of us go through life with a very narrow perspective, distorted perspective, flesh-based perspective through our own eyes perspective uh, very very limited very finite and yet when we're able to see and begin to embrace God's perspective that much bigger picture then suddenly not only do our attitudes change but our hearts change and you know as you delineate, Pastor, you you would have changed your circumstances. Could you, who have, uh, you know, go to the next door neighbor and say, "Hi, how would you like to adopt me?" All of us, I think, would love to escape our circumstances. But if we are incapable of changing our circumstances, is there something that we can do to change our perspective of those circumstances? I'm going to ask. 
Pastor Sean Thornton to stay with us for one more moment because I want to come back to that very key topic to kind of put a bow around this entire conversation, and that is in the midst of the pain and the brokenness and the frustration and, yes, sometimes the anger and the wailing and gnashing of teeth and the throwing of pots and pans, if you can't readily change your circumstances, and I think that describes life for a lot of us, then what can we do to change our perspective and to embrace God's viewpoint, God's understanding, God's perspective on this? We'll talk about that next as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And we jump back into the conversation here with Pastor Sean Thornton. He is senior pastor at Calvary Community Church of Westlake Village and the author of a new book called All But Normal, Life on Victory Road. I think we can all relate to a lot of what Pastor Sean has shared. We all find ourselves at varying times in life, in circumstances that we wish we could just wave the proverbial magic wand and escape from, um, and yet understanding what God wants from us and has for us in and through these circumstances, um, I think can not only be uh, tremendously encouraging, but also can give you a tremendous sense of hope for those sets of circumstances that you can't control, that you can't readily wave that magic wand and make all better or make simply go away. So then it becomes a matter of beginning to understand and appreciate what is God's perspective on where I am. And how can I learn from that? And that, I think, goes to the heart of, I think, at many levels, Pastor, what you're trying to share inside your new book, All But Normal, that a lot of it has to do with how God wants us to see things and then what we can take out of that that can be applied to our life, to our relationships, and ultimately to our relationship with our Creator. Definitely. And, Craig, you talked a few moments ago, you talked about perspective and how that, you know, from God's perspective, over time, there's something beautiful beautiful being woven. I remember Corey Tim Boom, the Holocaust survivor, used to travel and hold up a stitchery, and uh, she'd show the backside of this needlepoint. It was all threads and knots and colors, and she'd have people try to guess what the image was, and they couldn't tell. Then she'd turn it around, and it was a beautiful stitchery of a crown. And she'd say, from our human perspective, we're looking at the backside mm. of the stitchery that God is weaving in our lives, and that God sees the beautiful tapestry he's putting together even when we don't. And so as a kid going through what I went through or anybody going through, which we do at different seasons of life, brokenness and pain and heartache, we, we have to, when we can't see God's hand in it, we have to trust his heart and his, his uh, grace in the midst of all that. And for me as a kid, I kind of learned to do that uh, wrestling with God, if you will, and with the things I've been taught in youth group and Sunday school in Awana. And then I saw it come together as a pastor and as a follower of Christ as I studied scripture in Bible college and seminary. So I, I started seeing in the Psalms a pattern that David lived, a very simple pattern that I think helped him gain perspective when Saul was chasing him, when he was overwhelmed, thought, thought God had forgotten him at times and uh, felt overwhelmed by his circumstances. He would tell God how he felt. I mean, you read the Psalms, he cries out and basically says many times when he's in bad situations, God, my life stinks. I don't get it. And I think we have to, uh, as believers, understand God gives us the grace to tell him how we feel. That's a part of helping get perspective, is just telling him how we feel. Now, some people get stuck there. So David often in his Psalms moves to the next phase where he praises God for who he is, because no matter how he feels, 
God hasn't changed, so he chooses to worship, just like Job did when he was hit by the circumstances that overwhel- seemed overwhelming. And, um, and then we, we can't stop there. David, uh, I think specifically when he was in the cave of Agilom, running from Saul, and he'd been drooling in his beard before his enemies, David not only told God how he felt and said, God, this hurts, it stinks, I feel like I just want to give up and throw in the towel. But I'm going to praise you, I'm going to worship you, I'm going to sing to you among the nations. Then he went from telling God how he felt, praising God for who he was, to serving God by helping others. I love the story when David's in the cave of Agilom, it says while he's there, God sends to him all the people in distress, in debt, or who are discouraged in Israel. They come to him at the cave. And, you know, just what you want when you've had a cold, dark cave experience is a bunch of losers showing up at your door. <laughs> but but God gives him these, and it says he becomes the captain of them. And then that's the, the Psalm 34, we believe he says to those people who gather when he says, Oh, taste and see the Lord is good. And I think uh, for us to gain perspective, it's okay to pour out your heart. I cried out to God many times. I do it still when I suffer loss, when my mom died, or when we go through uh, dark waters as a family or deep things in the church ministry. You tell God how you feel, then you intentionally move past that and begin to praise Him for who He is. And then you look around for others who are hurting that you can serve. And then it's after I move through that process and over time I begin to see what God was doing Mm. in that dark time and it helps me gain perspective if you just try to gain perspective in the moment like you're you're falling in a free fall and you're trying to grab the sides of the cliff to understand why you're in this situation um, just to say I'm going to get perspective you really can't it takes time so that's why I really believe in telling God how you feel, praising God for who he is, and then serving God by helping others. And the sense of perspective, um, I, I think, to to uh, to help really um, couch this properly for those listening, the perspective is not the end game. The perspective helps, but no. isn't it true that it, 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 in the ultimate analysis of this. God is first and foremost about redemption. He is in the redemptive business. He sent his only son to die on the cross, that through his substitutionary work, we as his creation, as as fallen mankind, might be redeemed. And so God seeks to engage in this business of redemption at so many levels. And uh, let's be clear about this. It's not simply the redemption of our soul, but in some ways, I would imagine that as you look back upon your childhood, what your mom went through, the pain that she experienced, the pain that because of her injury and the resulting illness was brought upon your dad and your, your sibling, uh, if we could just say, okay, well, I understand it now. I have perspective on it. Well, that's okay, but it kind of leaves you on a downer note. But it sounds to me like you're beginning to also experience here a manner in which God has been able to redeem your past, so to speak, by putting it to good use for his glory and, and to help others. Yes, uh, you're, you're, I tell you, Craig, you're, you're right on, because as a result of this, there was originally an epilogue that was going to be the book that addressed right what you're saying. But as the editors and I looked at it, we decided that would be better as a, a book later that would be more than teaching. This is my story. And so I'm, I'm preparing a series this fall that would be teaching called Wounded for Good, and the subtitle is what you just said, Letting God Redeem the brokenness of your past and he has redeemed my story and now he's using it for my good the good of others and his glory and, and I think that's what he did with Joseph I think that's what he does with uh, Job as Job moves through all of the brokenness I, I think it's what he is doing you're right he is a God of redemption he's redeeming our eternal souls 
We even know that the earth is groaning, Romans 8 says, and it's longing for the day that it'll be made right. He, you know, the, the resurrection was the beginning uh, of the end of the curse and the groaning and the pain and the brokenness. And right now, he's demonstrating that in individual lives. And, and a story I put on the shelf and thought, nobody cares about my story because it shaped who I was and they're getting the secondary benefits of it, but I'm not going to tell anybody. And when I shared it with John Erickson Todd, and she said, I think your story can help others. Mm-hmm. Now I'm discovering, and I almost get emotional about it, that he's redeemed my story for my good, the good of others, and his glory. And, and it's a process where he worked on me, and he's molded me, and made me more like Jesus through the process. And you know, it's amazing. I can imagine the reaction by many of the disciples who watched cross, Christ nailed on that cross, and when they let out that final gasp, they, they must, as they were fleeing, thought to themselves, all is lost. This is all for naught. Uh, none of this is of any value now because our, our, our Lord is dead. And yet, to then, three days later, come to the realization that Christ redeemed all mankind through his law, his death on the cross, and that God redeemed his son by literally bringing him back to life again. So that even in the most serious and sad and seemingly hopeless set of circumstances that oftentimes we call our life, that God is capable of coming in and stepping down and saying, you know, I I am about redemption at so many levels, not just redeeming our our, 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 our very beings from from separation from God eternally by punishment in hell because of our sin nature, but that God wants to redeem every aspect of our lives. So that while in the moment it maybe made no sense and it seemed to be a complete, utter, total lost and waste, Yet in the end, as we gain that perspective, God begins to show us that I'm going to use this to not only help others, but to redeem that pain, that agony that you went through. And, and that's, I mean, that's, that's the beautiful part of the, of the gospel story. Yeah, and just hearing you say it and put it in that context, my story that he has redeemed fits into the overall redemption story. And I'm not trying to minimize or be cutesy about it, but as you just described it, it's linked to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And the hope I have is rooted in the hope of that redemptive plan that he carried out on behalf of the Father. And, you know, looking at my story in print was very hard for me. I could have written this in six months, but it took three and a half years. I had a very skilled co-writer, Joel Kilpatrick, and, and we could have done it probably in six months, but I would see my story in black and white and tears would, would, would you know, hit the printed page I printed a chapter on because I'm reliving some of this. But now, as I've gone through the process, I can tell you God has redeemed my story and I was, is, is using it for my good and the good of others. And I do believe in the brokenness of our family's pain and my mom's inner torment that she had. God is being glorified, and it, 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 it is something that only God could do by His grace. Amen. And you know, we all have stories to tell. Um, we all have that personal pain, that brokenness that we spoke of earlier, um, that is a part of the fabric of our lives in, in so many layers and so many levels. And yet, every bit of it is not beyond the redemptive power of Jesus Christ. And so, um, Think about the way in which God is redeeming you and redeeming your past 
and and how that as you study to show yourself approved, as you draw closer to him, that God will give you greater perspective on all of these matters. And then through that perspective, you can begin to see the redemption that takes place, that in and through all that pain, God redeems it and then uses it for his glory. And and ultimately, you can be used as a wonderful tool of his. It's a great book. It's a, it's a hard-to-read book in the sense that I think a lot of us see brokenness, especially anybody who's gone through turmoil in, in childhood, divorced families, uh, parents or siblings that struggle with, with either mental illness or, or substance abuse, whatever the case might be, or even the so-called ha, normal family, wink, wink, that you know was not really normal. Um, you can see yourself inside of the book, but most importantly, you can see God's redemption. All but normal. Life on Victory Road, a memoir. Again, the book newly published by Tyndale House, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area through the usual suspects, too, like Amazon.com. You can also get it online through Pastor Thornton's website, allbutnormal.com. That's allbutnormal.com. And our thanks to Pastor Sean Thornton, Senior Pastor at Calvary Community Church of Westlake Village, for being with us and sharing his story on this edition of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, you've probably heard the news. The number of Americans living below the poverty line is now at its highest level in some 50 years. That, according to a recent report released by the U.S. Census Bureau, finds that more than 46 million people in the United States um, have... uh, Qualified for that undubious uh, uh, position of being under the poverty level. The new figures are the third increase in three years and nearly 1% increase from 2009. The federal government also says that median incomes in the United States fell over 2% last year. The U.S. apparently has one of the highest poverty rates in the world among developed nations. I thought, you know, when we talk about poverty and the poverty level, uh, what exactly does that mean? How do we define all of this? And when the Census Bureau says that America has the highest poverty rates in the world among developed nations, uh, that's got a bigger question for definition, too. Well, with some insights, we brought in an expert. Robert Rector is a senior research fellow at the Heritage Foundation. He is considered one of the leading national authorities on the topic of the United States welfare system and poverty and um, has been recently dubbed the intellectual godfather of welfare reform by National Review editor Rich Lowry. And uh, Mr. Rector, great to have you on the program tonight. Well, thank you for having me on your show. Let's begin with some basic definitions. You know, when, when I hear the word poverty, I I have a vision in my mind, Robert, of similar to what uh, folks went through during the Great Depression. You know, the, the Dust Bowl people of Oklahoma making their way with all this stuff strapped in the side of their Model A into the state of California. Literally had no money, no resources, no food, no nothing. When we talk about poverty in America today, is the picture that I just painted an accurate one? No, but the picture that you have is is what the average person has in mind when they hear uh, the government say there are 46 million poor people. And they think about poverty as a, a family that's homeless or living in a decrepit shack with a hole in the roof, not having enough food to eat, maybe not being able to put clothes on your kids' backs. And when you look at the news media, when they run stories about poverty, they almost invariably present you with a homeless family 
or with a family that, that has an empty refrigerator and so forth. And while those families that are in that type of severe hardship do exist, and we have to be very concerned about them, they are a very, very tiny, tiny portion of this 46 million people that are are ostensibly poor. In fact, only 1% of the poor are homeless. Now, what about food? Well, the U.S. Department of Agriculture runs a a survey of food consumption and hunger each year, and last year they asked poor parents, this 46 million group, poor parents, they asked them the following question. At any time during the previous 12 months, were your children ever hungry, even for a single day, because you didn't have enough food in the home or you didn't have enough money for food? You know what? 96% of poor parents said, my children were never hungry at all at any point over the 12-month period in the middle of a of this severe, severe recession. Now, let me ask you an important question related to all of this, because I would imagine for folks that are filling out these surveys, I'd be a little bit hesitant uh, myself, quite frankly, Robert, to be uh, all that candid in some of my responses. I mean, are there cases where uh, parents are under-reporting their circumstances because they just simply feel embarrassed by it all? I- I don't really think so, because the survey asks a lot of other questions besides that. And the survey basically kind of tells us the same thing every year. And then there are other indicators that we'll talk about in the home. For example, um, when you look, we have surveys where you measure the actual food consumption and you compare the nutriment intake of poor children and upper-middle-class children. There, you can really have to struggle quite a bit to find any difference in the in the intake of vitamins and minerals and protein. They're all eating the same junk food, rich or poor. Kids still have uh, the sweet tooth. The same, <laughs> right, the same food. Uh, we even have surveys that go in and we take blood samples and we look for protein in the blood and, and things like that. And it, you don't find that poor people are generally particularly different than anybody else. If you look at, for example, the perce- the consumption of percentage of calories that come from protein, from carbohydrates, from fats, poor people look exactly the same as everybody else. We have another set of surveys that ask uh, poor these poor households what sorts of things they have in the home. And what this survey shows us is that 80% of poor people have air conditioning, two-thirds of them have cable TV, 75% of them have an automobile, a third of them have two or more automobiles, 50% of them have a computer in the home, 40% of them have Internet access, a third of them have a, a widescreen plasma TV, and a quarter of them have a TiVo system, okay? Now, that's the sorts of things you're just not going to make up, and and it's very consistent because we, as we look, even though the government kind of suggests that poor people aren't getting any better, year by year as we do that survey, the, the, the amount of things that the poor people have in their home goes up, largely as the cost of those commodities go down. I, I guess a lot of this then ultimately is very relative to what our point of reference is, and I want to talk about that when we come back. As, you know, as I mentioned earlier, look, if you're Warren Buffett and your net worth suddenly plummets from you know the billions of dollars that you're kicking around with every day to just $10 million in the bank account, to you that's probably poverty. Uh, to me, that's retirement. So is it relative, and to what degree then do we add? adequately define what poverty means and 
Can it really be true that the poverty situation is worse in the United States than any other so-called developed nation? Really? Or are we just living under a big illusion here? Delusion might be the better word. Robert Rector, Senior Research Fellow with the Heritage Foundation. A timeout. Back with more as Lifeline continues. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. 